National media continues to exaggerate and promote misleading negative headlines designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Remember, the only people who want to defund the police and dismantle these agencies are the criminals. And don't forget to thank a cop. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Law Matters. I want to make a few announcements this morning. In a couple of weeks, we are going to have a debate, a sheriff's debate. We want everybody to tune in for that so you can learn about the candidates who are running. Next week, we have Cochise County Sheriff and Sierra Vista Police Chief. They've got a new police chief. We're going to meet him. And we like to interview candidates when it has anything to do with our law enforcement. So this morning, we're going to be talking with Mike Jetty. And, Mike, I heard that... um, Again, this is the second time I've heard this, that you were referred to as ugly, and I'm looking at you, and I don't think you're, like, too ugly. You're not like an ogre or anything. What's up with that? Are are you an ugly person? Well, good morning, Sherry. I appreciate the opportunity to come back on the radio. Um, No, I don't think I'm – I I don't know the context, but I think the context was I was an ugly person, like personhood, my soul or whatever. Oh, it's personal. Personal. It's a personal attack. And, okay. Um, I, I like to keep the campaign on the facts. And if the facts are personal to her, then I'm sorry about that. But the facts are the facts. And we like to discuss the facts of Pima County. And so I like to keep it there. And so if she wants to make a personal attack, then I welcome her to a debate and have the same thing said to me in a debate then. Okay. Well, we're not going to call names here because when they go low, we go high. All right. So let's talk about why you're running. I know you, you've got a platform. Let the listeners hear what your platform is. I, I, I think, the think it's easy to think of it, the platform in four, four key areas. One is to hold criminals who are dangerous and um, violent and repetitive accountable. And so we're not going to release them on conditions of release. We're going to, we're going to arrest them, hold them, and prosecute them. So that's number one, hold these dangerous, violent, repetitive offenders accountable. Number two is justice for victims. And I want to really focus in on the elderly, women, and kids. You mean like me? Are you a child? No. <laughs> so I want, I want to make sure I, my career as a prosecutor has been victim, victim prosecution. So the majority of my cases have always been with victims in mind. And so I want to make sure that we not only continue that, that process of holding defendants accountable for committing crimes against victims, but make sure victims have a voice. That's number two. Number three would be to address the fentanyl epidemic because it's a crisis. And not only is it a crisis for the users who are addicted to fentanyl, but it's also a crisis for the community, ranging from small businesses to residential homes get burglarized to fund their, their addiction. So we want to address the fentanyl epidemic. And number three, and number four is address the mismanagement in the office. Sherry, you may not know, but they've gone from 70-plus prosecutors down to the low 40s. I think two prosecutors just announced they're, they're leaving the office in the month of March. And so you've got a, a, a stress situation, a man, an office in crisis. So those are the four key areas that I want, I want to focus in on the moment I step into office. Okay. Um if Barbara Wall was here, would you be having the same conversation with me? I will not be having a discussion with you about holding a defendant accountable. I mean, I think Ms. LaWall in her era was 
nothing nothing short of holding defendants accountable for what they did. And so it's unfortunate that we have to now talk about holding defendants accountable because the current office holder, Ms. Conover, fails to do so. And so that's that is our problem. We we have someone who gets a defendant who gets arrested and then gets released, he commits another crime, gets arrested and gets released again, and round and round we go, we have a problem. And so what we need to do is hold people accountable when they get arrested for a violent or dangerous crime, hold them accountable, hold them in custody, have their day in court, we do justice, we have due process, and then let the court decide, let a jury decide on what the accountability should be. Okay, by not holding these people accountable, it seems like we've got a vicious circle going on. They, They have their illegal drugs, and they're sharing their drugs with other people or selling them to other people. If you hold them accountable and maybe try to get them cleaned up, you know, in rehab or, you know, taken care of in a way that they're not drug addicts anymore, isn't that more of a solution than just letting them go because they don't have the money to pay for a bail? Yeah, you know, so, so I mean, your question is, is kind of a complicated question. So if, I, if we arrest or find someone with a possession of a dangerous drug or a narcotic drug, that's a, that's a crime. And so, but I'm not necessarily going to throw you in Department of Corrections for it. What I'm going to do is put you in a program. I'm going to make sure that we want you to, to, to defeat this addiction that you've got going on. So we're going to try our best to go through the addiction. But How many times do you do that? Do you let somebody go into a program to try to get clean? Well, this is a step-up program. And so okay. when Ms. LaWall, when she left, Amelia Kramer then set up a wonderful program going from deflection, which is no arrest record all the way to DOC and there's a 12-step program DOC is Department of Correction okay so you go from no arrest all the way through this process because if you keep if you keep because addiction is tough and so sometimes we need to 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 wake you up again so tough love tough love so we go through this process and there's wonderful programs of drug court step program there's DTAP DOC is the Department of Correction is the very last thing we want for people who are addicted. We don't want that. But those are share. I want to make sure those are for people who we catch with possession of a dangerous narcotic drug. If you commit a crime on top of that, when I say having those drugs is a crime, when you commit a crime like a person crime, like a multiple crimes, like a burglary or robbery or assault, you know, I, you're going to address that drug addiction in Department of Corrections because you need to pay the price for committing a crime against a victim. And then after so, that, they go to the STEP program? No, no, there, there's treatment or, programs within Department of Corrections. Okay. There's, there's, there's wonderful programs within our system. And so, but unfortunately, you've got to also take accountability for what you've done. For being a bad actor. Yeah, when you break into someone's home and you commit anxiety and, and fear for a victim, you're going to have to, you, you will have to pay the price of that crime. Now, I'll, we're going to be compassionate. We all, we all understand. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm going to throw someone in prison for 20 years for a burglary. I'm not saying that at all. However, you're going to have to pay the consequences of, of committing a crime on top of the drug addiction. So I know law enforcement, there's a little frustration going on here because they're doing their jobs. They're putting these cases together that evidence of a good case that could go to trial and, and win yet they're being turned away by the prosecutor or the prosecutor's office. How do you solve that? What, what, what do you say to these law enforcement guys who are, like, set up? 
Well, it, that's unfortunate. It's, it's difficult to know anecdotally what case people are referring to. However, if a, an officer arrests someone and there is sufficient evidence to hold them accountable, you move forward. And the problem with the office now is because you don't have as many prosecutors, and those prosecutors are still there, have enormous caseloads. So the cases aren't getting, aren't getting prosecuted or aren't getting looked at the same as it did years earlier. And so your problem is, is your officers walk away thinking, you know what, the next time I have a situation like this, why even bother putting that case in a box and put a bow on it and give it to the county attorney if they're just going to say no to it? So now you've got a chilling effect going on with law enforcement, especially for the smaller crimes. Because smaller crimes often, as, as the audience knows, sometimes leads to bigger crimes. And so if I catch someone doing something small like graffiti or trespass or criminal damage, if I interact with that defendant then, I may prevent that. I'm not in more, this is not minority report. I can't predict what they do in the future. But all, all good logic says to me, if I interdict now, I could prevent something more dangerous later. Put them on a different track. Put them on a different track. Absolutely. And there's been a lot of cases, and I know there's an organization, I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but for retail stuff. They put, you know, okay, this person robbed this store, this Target, and then they go to Circle K, then they're at Walmart. And this group of people put all of this together and hand it over. And, you know, here's all the evidence from all these different stores, videos even, and still they're turned away. It doesn't make any sense that that would happen other than the fact that you're saying they don't have enough staff. You know, when you, when you ask me a question that doesn't make any sense, I don't have an answer that would make sense of it. It doesn't make sense to me either. So when I think the organization you're referring to is CART, Coalition Against Retail Theft. Okay. I'm not, or the law enforcement officers or the agents who put the, these cases together. Right. If there's sufficient evidence to hold someone accountable, you prosecute them for the crime. Now, you can be compassionate on the sentencing, whatever the reason is for whatever. I, but most of these re- organized retail th- thieves, I'm not quite sure what compassion I can give them when they continually go in and and jeopardize the livelihood of small businesses. It's hard for me to feel compassion when they come in and take inventory and jeopardize the survivability of a business. And so I... And then turn around and sell it. Turn around and sell it. So they'll go around. There was somebody at the door in case the listeners are wondering. So <laughs> we're not we're not broadcasting from the studio. We're on site, and we are at 3445 North Dodge at the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge. And after the show, we will have a town hall where you can come over here and meet Mike, get your questions answered. And do you have a presentation, or are you just going to stand there and be ugly? <laughs> okay, and answer your questions. Any questions are welcome. Any questions are welcome. <laughs> okay, so if you you have time, stop over and and see us. We're going to be here until probably around noonish, and you know we need signatures. You need. I don't need signatures. You need signatures. I'm always looking for signatures, volunteers, donations, any kind of contribution or support is always wanted. And, and coffee would be wonderful. If you have any coffee, bring coffee. Let's talk about panhandling. I see people all over the city, and they're on the sidewalks, they're in the, in the middle of the street, they go from car to car, 
they're, you know, running between cars because somebody in the third lane wants to give somebody in in the left lane a, a donation. Shouldn't that be illegal to panhandle? Yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not going to be an expert on the panhandling because it's going to be more of a misdemeanor type of a type of offense, and also only in only in um, certain areas of Pima County where I have jurisdiction over that. However, I mean, no one likes these unsolicited sales pitch from panhandlers, right? They want money and stuff. No one likes it. And that's going to be an issue for your mayor and council. That's going to be an issue for your board of supervisors. Get out and vote. Talk to them. I will enforce whatever law there is to enforce. But as of right now, I think only in the unincorporated areas, I will have jurisdiction over someone who is panhandling. And so so if they're in the city of Tucson, that's going to be a misdemeanor. If, if, if there's an offense committed, that's going to be a misdemeanor, and the city of Tucson is going to handle that case. So, Okay. It's, if, it's, if you, I don't, it's, it's a nerve-wracking thing. I don't like it either, and, and, but there's, I mean. All you're doing, if you're giving money to somebody standing on the corner or standing in the media uh, supporting their drug addiction. I'm not quite sure about I I, I, I'm not I just feel that, that way. <laughs> I know. I'm not jumping to that conclusion. I just don't know how legitimate it is that they are as destitute as they are. I just don't know. And I've so seen some people out there for years and years and years. Yeah. It's a career. I, a career panhandler. Put that on your resume. Yeah, I can't speak to I can't speak to that. It's a it's an issue. I know a lot of people have a problem with that. Um, but my issue is going to be more of the burglaries, robberies, dangerous, violent offenders. And those are the things that you know, if my only worry was panhandles, hey, your life would be easy. I wouldn't be running for office. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be running for office. <laughs> okay. Last time we talked, we were talking about the death penalty and the fact that I think it was Georgia had a problem getting getting the drugs they needed or the chemicals they needed. My suggestion was a bowl of uh, fentanyl pills and a glass of water. That didn't go over well. So, but in the course of that conversation, you used the word liberal. And in some political circles, liberal is a dirty word. So I want you to tell us your definition of liberal in the context that we were speaking. Well, I forget the exact context we were speaking. Death penalty. Well, I'm not quite sure the death penalty breaks liberal or conservative. But my definition of liberal, I, you know, I'm a Democrat, and I believe in universal health care. I believe in in social safety nets. That's what makes me a liberal. However, when it comes to the death penalty, um, I'm not quite sure what the context I use the word on. However, I do not believe in the use of the death penalty because of the arbitrariness of its of it, of it how it's meted out. And two, it's super expensive. And so instead of one case, I could prosecute hundreds of other cases for the cost of one. Put them in a box for 23 hours a day with one hour of rec time. That's the way I'm going to treat someone who commits a heinous crime. Let them, let them stew over it for the 80 years. It also gives my victim closure because those appellate issues, the code goes up and down, up and down through the appellate process. It doesn't give victims closure. Let's talk about the appeal po- uh, process because if you're convicted, you get the death penalty, you have an automatic appeal. You do. How many appeals does a person get before it's like, okay, you're done? There's no magic number, but you get an automatic first appeal to the Supreme Court. So that and it's is, very costly. It, it costs the citizens a lot of money because you're paying your prosecutors all the, and his team or her team all this money to bring this case to court again. Well, there's three silos of costs. One is obviously the prosecutors and 
of the AG's office, because the AG will handle the appeal. Typically, the Attorney General's office will handle the appeal from the county. Number two is you've got the defense. During a trial, a defendant who is, who is, who is, but when the prosecution seeks a death penalty against a defendant, they get two defense attorneys, one qualified for death, and usually get two defense attorneys. And then on top of that, you've got the cost of incarceration. People who are on death row are incarcerated differently than people who are incarcerated. Really? Huh? Explain. There's death row. And so you've got a different, different group of individuals, different facility, different guards. You have, it's a much different cost. You have to train differently to guard a death row person? I couldn't speak intelligent on that. I just know the cost. <laughs> I know the cost is is not the same cost of incarcerating someone, even in max facility. It's it's a different, higher cost, and so you got three tranches of additional cost: the prosecution, appellate team, the defense, and their team. All the experts that go into this, you have experts for mitigation, and then you also have the cost of incarceration during this entire process. On top of that, you don't have closure for the victim for sometimes years and years. Sometimes it's 10 to 15 years. You're talking a lot of time, a lot of anxiety for victims. So why don't we just close this down, lock them away for the rest of their life for the committing a heinous crime, and be done with it. Let the so, victims get on with their life. And we don't have to worry about if, if we don't have to worry about how it's how the death penalty is meted out arbitrarily. We don't have to worry about that anymore. So, have you had the opportunity to walk walk around the city since you've been back? I know you've been gone. Maybe we should address. You've been gone for a couple of years. Let's talk about that before we talk about walking around the city. Where where were you? I was overseas, mainly in Pakistan. So you weren't locked up anywhere. You were actually working. <laughs> I was working for the Department <laughs> of Justice. And so DOJ sent me overseas to help set up prosecution offices and train prosecutors in places like Pakistan and the Philippines, mainly Pakistan. So and came, what kind of cases? All kinds of cases, but mainly it's going to be Focus on money laundering, focus on financial, major financial crimes, violent crime, and terrorism. Those are the big, big four. And then I came back about, now it's been, like, I want to say, four months now. And when I came back, um, we live downtown, and there's a noticeable difference downtown, a noticeable difference. And so um, my wife and I, we run together, and I maybe twice, three times a month, there's always an altercation in the morning not a physical altercation, but one that creates anxiety, oftentimes verbal, and it's just a, I can't imagine my wife running alone or even walking alone. And so it's just a, it becomes a, a different city, and that's just in the morning. I mean, just the other day, 4.30 in the afternoon, I'm walking, we're walking downtown by, by the bus station downtown, the Ronstadt bus station, and some dude, some, some dude, that's my technical word. Some guy is spray painting on a business and no one, there's cops nearby and no one's responding. I verbally say something and my wife is now afraid that I'm going to lose a physical fight, which she's 1% correct. I will lose a physical fight. But, but this is, this is a nature that you, you know, I, and I don't, this is anecdotal, but I don't remember that kind of feeling four years ago. I don't remember that. And so that is, is troubling for me when I live. We, we're even thinking about moving from downtown. We like to go shopping, but we don't like to go shopping where people are just camped out. Uh, uh, you have to this, step over them. Step they, over will, them. they will accost you, and that's why I've stopped shopping locally. And, and I hate long. to say that, but it, it hurts Tucson. It hurts me. Because you can't just go and buy something. You can't go to the grocery store without somebody panhandling or calling you a foul name because you didn't give them money. 
and you have to step over them or they're passed out on the sidewalk or they're, you know, there's feces everywhere and, you know, it's ugly. We just, I just heard, I mean, if you go to Target on Oracle, they've mm-hmm. got both entrances have armed security guards and everything's behind, mm-hmm. everything's behind locked glass. I mean, what kind of society, I mean, what kind of, here, here's, what kind of society do we want? And then what kind of investment are you going to make? What kind of, your vote is your investment. What kind of investment do you want to make to make sure this is a society, this is the kind of community we want? You want to raise the kids here. So your vote is your investment. How do you want to use your investment and which, which, which candidate do you want to support? Do you want to support the career prosecutor or do you want to support the individual who's never prosecuted a case in her entire career? So that's that's big. <laughs> that's huge. So we're talking about voting. If people want to get ready for the primary, what are the dates? They And people think that if you're an independent, and it's true, if you're an independent, they're not going to send you a ballot if it's a mail-in thing. You have to request a party. You have to decide who you want to be. And I, is that date gone? What date is it? Today's the 17th. They have till the 20th. Well, no. So let's let's. You're talking about your. Hold on. So there's two things. You're two different. Two things, different things. Two different things you're talking about. One is, let's first talk about the presidential preference, and that is in March. I think March 17th or something. The date for an, no independents can vote in the presidential preference. You have to be a party member, the Republican or Democrat, to vote in a presidential preference, which is March. So okay. if you want to vote in a presidential preference, which is not the primary, as not the primary. It's not the primary. It's just one, just two choices, presidential for Republican, presidential for Democrat. That's the only thing on the March 17th deal. But you have to be a party person to vote in that, either Republican or Democrat. Right. For the primary, for what I'm running in, that primary vote, that election is July 30th. So you have to decide if you're an independent. You have to decide. I want to say 30 days before if you want to be a party member. However, independents can vote in the primary. You do not have to change your party to vote in the primary. What's going to happen, though, is the election board will send you a notice. What ballot do you want? And you select, don't throw it away. You say, I want to select the Democratic ballot. If you're an independent, you say, I want to select a Democratic ballot. You will then get a Democratic ballot along with all the other Democrats so you can vote in the Democratic primary. So do not throw that notice away. You'll get that notice sometime in June, or it could be May or June. I don't know when that's going to come out. So Yeah, it'll, it'll come to you before it happens, but you need to do Democrat or Republican. You can pick whatever one you want. But if you want to vote, you have to decide. Don't throw it away. You you have to pick, you have to tell them what ballot you want. Right. You yeah. have to yeah. you have to pick. You have to pick the ballot. And then you get a separate mailing for your mail in ballot. You get a separate mail in. Or you can vote on the day July thirtieth. You can vote then too. I mean you don't want you can take that. You can get a mail-in ballot, not not turn it in, but you can go and do what everyone does and get a little sticker and go on July 30th and vote at your polling place. Yeah, I don't need a sticker. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are the laws that we have on the books now good enough to hold people accountable for drug um, trafficking, drug paraphernalia, drug use, drug selling, drug buying, anything to do with illegal drugs? I think there's plenty of laws on the books to to make someone accountable for. Well, how come they're not being used then? 
you can't ask me a rhetorical question, Sherry. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. No, I can ask you anything. I, I don't know the answer to that, why, why people are choosing not to enforce the law. Now, I know in drug cases, the possession cases, those are unique cases. If all you have is possession of a dangerous drug or narcotic drug, I'm going to treat you differently. But if you're committing a crime of, say, you're selling drugs or you have a candy store, I refer to a candy store as that house on the corner of your block for some reason, at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning, you got cars coming in and out. I call that a candy store because, you know, those, sometimes those are drug, drug houses. And so they're selling, they're selling narcotics or dangerous drugs from the house. If you've got those situations, there's plenty of laws on the book to hold those people accountable and punish them accordingly. And so there's plenty of good laws on the book. The question is, do you use them and do you, do you attribute them to the defendant that deserves it? And so that is, do you do you do you hold them accountable? And I can't answer why people do or don't do that. I can't answer that question. So if you're elected, do you have a team of people that you'll bring in to beef up the prosecution office? Do you know everybody that well, you... This is, well, this is... Uh, so it's, uh, it's odd that I actually went for DOJ overseas to build up prosecution offices because I never thought in my wildest dreams I had to come back to Pima County to build up a prosecution office in Pima County. This office has been under crisis management since she has taken office. So Barbara LaWall had 70 plus prosecutors in the office, which is good. Yeah. However, now we're down into the 40s. And so you've lost some serious talent, some serious experience. And so how do you do that? So you've got, you got to rebuild Why did they it. leave? Why did they leave? Well, that's a lot of people. I mean, do you know? Have you talked with any of them? I know the narrative. The narrative from Conover is we got rid of the, the, the wall people, didn't like whatever reform policy, whatever that nonsense is. Okay. The, the reality of most of those lawyers not only campaigned for Conover, voted for Conover, put Conover signs in their yard. When she took office, they were like, what is going on? You've got ethical issues with the Taylor case. You've got lack of prosecution with the U of A professor. You've got all these indices, all these, all these indicators like this is an office I don't want to be associated with. Was it was so, lack of experience. Lack of experience goes in. So you have attorneys who then jump ship to the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is a wonderful place to work. You've got attorneys who will drive to Pinell County. And so you have attorneys who say, I'm out. I'm done. I'm going on to the next part of my career. And sometimes I go to tribal prosecution. So you've got all these other areas where attorneys go to. So will there be an opportunity for me to bring them back? Maybe. I mean, because some of these people now have, they've been doing those jobs now for two, two plus years, right? And so more experience, <laughs> more experience, and maybe they got a better lifestyle. So it's going to be hard for me. So what you got to do now is rebuild this office, which is, a, it's just odd that I just came back from doing that. And so this is an experience. Well, I didn't, never thought I would do that with LaWall. LaWall had, people may disagree with a lot of things that she did in the office, but one thing she never, never shied away from was holding people accountable. And she had attorneys who, she never had the flight of attorneys as this office has done, it's, and it has experienced. I remember she was, she was very into uh, educating the public, and she would hold uh, citizens' academies. And I, Miss LaWall. Right. And I, I went to her Citizens Academy, and that was really how I got to know her thought process and, and how she felt about Tucson and the area. And she was very caring about this area. She really wanted it to be the place you want to come and live and raise your kids and, and be safe. It's unfortunate, the, you know, 
the conover um, wants to make she wants to make this a go uh, against the wall. I've never once worked for the wall. My experience has been mainly state prosecution and federal prosecution. I've never once worked for Barbara the Wall. But if you want to make it against Barbara the Wall, go at it, because Barbara the Wall has got an excellent track record. Right? You may not like the, the previous candidate, which Jonathan Mosier, but that is – Jonathan Mosier is not part of this equation. you got Mike Jetty here, who is a career prosecutor. I like Jonathan. He was a good guy. <laughs> we have Mike Jetty, who never worked for the wall, but I've got – 17 years of prosecution at all levels, including international, and setting up offices some of the most difficult, dangerous places. I'm coming back in Pima County, and we're going to make we're going to make this right again. We're going to try our best to make this right again. We're going to make it a community that I want to go shop. I can walk around. I don't feel anxious. I don't feel the anxiety. My wife doesn't feel that anxiety. And so this is what we this is our goal. That's what we're going to do. So use your vote as an investment. Use it as an investment. I'm asking you, which of these two portfolios do you want? You want the portfolio with three years of bad experience, or you want a portfolio of 17 years of doing prosecution work for victims? Okay, let's talk about um, your history, your work history as, as a lawyer. You started out, you were working for a, a law firm? Right, right when I graduated, way, way back. Okay, from there, where did you go? Well, I came to, I came, that was in, that was in, I was in Oregon. However, you know, you don't know this, Gary, but I'm a triplet, and one of my brothers got sick. So I came to Tucson in 2001. So I've been here. I've been in, 2000, in Tucson since 2001. Um, I was already a lawyer, but I went to get my master's in business from Thunderbird, and then. Then people don't know what Thunderbird. That's the international school or the School of International Management. Yeah, it's, it's a very exclusive school. Very exclusive. I, I think ASU bought them out, so my brother makes fun of me that saying I'm an ASU grad. I'm not an <laughs> ASU grad. Uh, however, so I went to Thunderbird, which is a two-year program, and then um, my wife and I, I'm telling you how I got into this thing. So my wife and I decided to join the Peace Corps, and then the Peace Corps told us that we got accepted, and the Peace Corps is going to send us in different parts of the different parts of the planet in the world, the planet? which is not what we want to do as a couple. And so we turned it down. So I started looking for a job and the job I got was in Santa Cruz County. And that's how I started to become a prosecutor. So my very first prosecution job is in Santa Cruz County. And then I got promoted. I got seen pretty quickly in the attorney general's office said, we want you for white collar, come to the attorney general's office. We had then the white collar world, opened up public corruption, white collar, all sorts of things. And then the U.S. Attorney's Office came calling, and then I jumped over the U.S. Attorney's Office. And that's my career in a nutshell. So it all because the Peace Corps said, Mr. Jetty and Miss Jetty, you guys are going to be different places. I mean, like, we ain't going to do that. So, <laughs> what were they I, I could have been someplace else doing all kind of all They lost career. out. They lost out. That's too bad. So we've got people, and I know they're, we're going to be talking to some of them today, um, they feel that they've lost family members because of illegal drugs. They use the word poison because it is a poison. But is there not some accountability? If you're dabbling with illegal anything, you end up dead. There's still some accountability on this part. How do you tort law? How do you justify that? How do you... How does the scale move? Well, I'm going to avoid the tort law thing. I mean, that's not, <laughs> but um, in, the, in the criminal world, it's, you know, this is, this is very, this is hard. So um, 
if I buy cocaine from you, Sherry, and then I OD on cocaine, do I prosecute, should I prosecute, prosecute you for my, my death? And the answer is, in my, in my humble opinion, no. It's a buyer beware. Both people enter an agreement. You're buying cocaine and the seller, he's responsible for the selling of a poison. We're, we're, we're on top of that. He's, he's responsible for the selling of the cocaine. But this happens all the time. There's, it's like a, if you OD on a pharmacy thing, are, am I going after J&J? Am I going after, you know, um, am I going after Bristol Myers? Am I going after Eli Lilly? The answer is no. I mean, we have a seller who's selling. You're the one who's, who's eyes wide open. Now you're addicted. You got a problem. Great. However, I want to say this is a key point. If my seller, Sherry, if you cut the drug, and I don't know about it. You cut it with, say, fentanyl. Say I'm buying cocaine and you cut it because fentanyl's cheaper, more dangerous, and I don't know about it, and I pass away, I die. I'm going to hold you accountable for the homicide because you did something now where I, as a buyer, did not know about it. And so these, these How do you prove that? How, do, how, is, how is that proof? How do you prove? Well, it becomes a, that's a different. I'm, I'm talking about hard. concept. I'm talking yeah. about concept. So the concept is that is the concept. So we have, I think, you interviewed someone who thought they were buying a Tylenol and it was actually a fentanyl. Right. Well, that's a that's clearly a marking. I have to get the evidence, but that's clearly something that I would consider for a homicide charge. I mean, you clearly are wanting to get a Tylenol and you get a fentanyl pill. And yeah, you, you ask your roommate, you're in college, you ask your roommate for a, a Tylenol because you have a headache and you die from fentanyl. That's an issue. Now, now I got to prove that person intentionally gave this person a fentanyl in lieu of a Tylenol pill. I mean, all these things go into the, we're talking about conceptually here. We're talking about conceptually. So I just want to make that distinction. Some of these cases are extremely painful, extremely difficult, and I understand a lot of people's positions on them. However, it's, it's hard for me. We, we have, I, we grew up, I grew up in a Marine Corps house. There's internal, I do too. <laughs> there's agency. We have agency. And so we have a buyer who buys illegal drugs, and they know what they're doing. They're going to have to eat the consequence of that, that transaction. We don't like it. I'm going to prosecute the seller for sure. But should he be charged for homicide? That's a much more difficult thing. Now, it's easier if they cut it or alter it without the buyer knowing about it. And that's in, you're not doing a transaction. It's like buying a defective car. You don't know that the, the left tire, the nuts aren't screwed on to the left side, and all of a sudden you're on the freeway. You're on the freeway and it comes off the road. I mean, you clearly have a situation here where you got some accountability. So, and you know, we've I've had DEA on a lot, and one of their messages is they're they're sell test strips to detect uh, fentanyl. You know, it's an over the counter type thing. Don't trust them because if you are playing with illegal drugs, you know, one side of the pill could be good, but the other side has fentanyl in it. You just don't know because they're homemade. They're not manufactured in a licensed facility. I, I would recommend not not, not consuming anything <laughs> unless it comes from a pharmacy or something or a very trusted source like your wife or husband or something like that. Because I'm bringing up the Tylenol thing. Don't take anything and consume it thinking that you're okay with it. Just don't. Don't, don't rely don't upon do an over-the-counter test. Don't do it. And so I always tell college kids, don't don't take drugs from your roommates either or anybody, not yeah. even a friend. Don't do it. Well, it's a, well, you said it earlier. It's a poison. And why would you poison yourself? Don't do it. I know people are addicted, so we'll deal with that with the, the that, that whole 12-step program. If I catch you with drugs, we're going to put you through this program because we want to make sure we help you. We want you to be a neighbor. I want you – I want to hang out with people 
right? We know the addiction. I have someone who committed a crime on my campaign team who went to prison, and he was addicted. And so he, he'll be running my addiction program, a defendant I threw in prison who's out, who's going to be running my addiction program because this guy is awesome. He shows what recovery can do, come back into society and have a... a do I know him? What's his name? Court Gettle. I don't know him. I think he used to be like number two tennis player in, 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 as a junior in the, in the nation. Wow. So, but and then drugs, drugs got him. Down. Drugs got him. And drugs got him. And so that's, uh, yeah, so. You know, and I, I look at these people that are like, you know, flaked out all over the city. And I was like, you know, I bet each one of them has an amazing story where they used to have dreams and, and desires and, and just went down this. What's, what's nice is when you see someone like Court who had so much ahead of him and then drugs and alcohol gets, gets the best of you. But then you see recovery and you see the second opportunity. You see that you know, he's got the rest of his life now. He's got better relationship with his kids. And, you know, he's, this is a positive thing. We want to make sure people who are addicted go through these programs because we want them in our community. We want to associate with them. We want to be friends with them. We want him we want to help him to lick, lick, lick this problem. So Absolutely. How long does it take if, you've, if you're talking about drug court and the STEP program, what is the length of time from the time you start a program like that? And complete failure? To complete success. <laughs> Oh, success! Success can happen any time in the process, and so it, I, and the answer is I don't know. And th- there's much better people out there who know about this than I do. I, I don't want to speak it. I can't even speak intelligently or even semi-intelligently on the the road of recovery. That is for the experts to talk about. But I do know there's science out there. There's evidence about how to do it, and we have those programs. And there's programs. I imagine that, it's up to the individual too, because everybody's got a different a different trail to follow. Yeah, it's, you know, life is, life carries you on different paths, and so everyone's different, and so treatment, treatment hits them at different parts, too. The effectiveness of treatment hits them at different parts, too. So, Okay, I know you used to, while you were here, you were here in Santa Cruz County, I don't remember, um, you used to do with kids, you'd have fake trials. What do they call them? Mock trials. Mock trials. Yes. A fake trial. Do you use... Real cases? So, yeah, so the, the Arizona, just like other states, have what we call mock trial competition for high school. And so I used to coach, I coached a couple of years at Choya and then a lot of years at Gregory. And you would have high school, high school kids who get together and they prepare on a fact pattern. That fact pattern usually is written off of a real case real that case. happened somewhere. They change the names, circumstances a little bit. <laughs> a lot of those things come from real cases. And so, and then you compete in your region and you compete state. And then you can, if you win your state, you get invited to the nationals. And so Gregory's won a few, a few regionals, never won state. I think came runner up one time with us. Is it the debate team that usually takes part in this, or is it people that are kids that are interested in law? Usually kids interested in law. Usually the, those are two separate, separate activities in school, the debate and, and mock trial are two different activities. But, but that's, that's a good start, debate team. Well, I don't know if it's – I think sometimes there's a scheduling conflict. I couldn't tell. I have okay. no idea. So <laughs> I'm not a high school teacher. So I don't know. So give me an example of, of the type of – because I've worked mock trials. I've been a part of doing that for different cases – Give me an example of the kind of scenario you would give to the kids that they would have to debate. 
Well, in a, well, argue in a in a trial setting. But, one was like a uh, you know college kid who was going through a hazing to get into a, a frat house, and then one of the hazing things was drinking. I think it was drinking a lot of water, and he dies of water overdose. And, and that's so, so the question is, and this is a civil case, and so the question is, is, is the is the kids and the the fraternity and and the university responsible for the death of this kid during the hazing? And so that was one of the arguments you go through because then there's the the rule of agency. You're going in eyes wide open. You're drinking the water. No one's forcing you to drink the water. And, and you got this is a known danger, and so those are the things that you argue. You argue the law, you argue the facts, and so. But not everybody knows that if you drink too much water, you can die from it. I mean, I, if I was a teenager, I certainly wouldn't. Well, the, I was drinking water. Okay, I'm going to be okay. Well, the, it's water. It's not alcohol. No, I, I'm not. I'm not a scientist here, but I, the body has wonderful mechanisms to prevent you. So you really have to go. You have to blow by those self-correcting mechanisms of the body. The body's not gonna. The body's not gonna just allow you just to drink and drink and drink without any any indicators going off. So you're gonna get some indicators going off if you're getting too hydrated. In Arizona, I think the problem is not the too much hydration. The Arizona is dehydration in Arizona. That's our big problem. So, sure. So. Sure. So. How many years did you do that? The, the I did my trial for um, since all, all the way up until I left to go overseas. So about I total about ten years. So wow, yeah. So you like giving back to the community? Well, I I do. My my best experience is coaching Special Olympics, and that was the my best experience. Which so. which arena? Which which sports or yeah. which? Oh yes, yeah, spring and spring and summer. So I did like volleyball and baseball and weightlifting, and so and some of those kids were just amazing, talented physically. However, just they copy they copy people, and so especially in the baseball arena where a play goes bad, and I I've never heard more foul mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard more, <laughs> which makes you smile. But everything else you know, makes me smile because you hear like and you hear some creativity. There's some, some creativity. So they're learning. They're, so that, that's what those are the things that make me makes me smile because it you know I mean you, the more you get back, the more you realize how blessed you are. And yeah. and it's I have been very blessed. And we when we talk about my problems, there's a lot of people with bigger problems, and there's people who Let's are. Let's talk about your problems. What's your problem? <laughs> I don't. I don't have the same problems, and um, what, I, what I mean by I mean there's people who are who are going through homicide, homicide survivors, and there's people who are sex sex assault survivors, and those people are living day to day with with the ghosts and the the demons that just haunt them, and so all I can say to them is. Your voice is important, and we want to make sure that we hold those people who do those things accountable. Because it's never going to it's never going to resolve the ghosts that you have and the demons. However, however, it does go a long way knowing that someone's fighting for you and alongside you, and so that does help out. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing a show on homicide survivors. So you know, I won't be doing it. Rich Tracy will be doing it. He's going to host the show. He's got a, a great group of people coming in to talk about it. And, and just to know that there's help out there. You're not doing everything on your own. And we just did a, a suicide awareness show mm-hmm. recently. And people need to know that you're not alone. I don't care what your situation is. I mean, we've been around for thousands of years. Somebody else has experienced it, and you're not alone. So there's help all over the place. Yeah. So we want everybody to know that. Starting at 
Mike's going to be here, and he's going to answer all your questions. We're at 3445 North Dodge at the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge, and that's between Fort Lowell and River on the west side of the street. No water hazing. No No water hazing. No water hazing going on here. (laughs) So we want everybody to, if you're in the area, come on out. And you know, meet Mike. He's been he's been gone, but he's back now. So if you haven't heard about him, and we're going to be doing a special event on the sixth of April in the afternoon from one to four. Put it on your calendar. I'll have more details about that down the road. Next week we're going to be talking with Cochise County Sheriff and the new police chief from Sierra Vista. And what does this one say? In a couple of weeks we're having. Oh yeah, on the second of March we're going to have a debate with the um, three of the candidates who are running for sheriff, the three candidates who have assured me they have enough signatures to be on the ballot. And I know there are seven people running. Only three of them are going to make the cut as far as I know. I don't know everything, but that's what I know about that. So tell us what you're doing. Tell us what you're doing to prepare to, if you get elected, what are you doing to prepare to take office Day one, hit the ground running. What are your plans? Well, day one, I, you know, my my day one through day seven is going to be reassure the people in the office that we, we're going to restore the confidence of holding people accountable and making sure that we give victims their voice. That's day one. And the second goal I have is, how do I rebuild the talent that has left? Not just attorneys. We're not just talking about attorneys. We're talking about staff. staff. I mean, staff, let's be honest, I wouldn't be where I'm at but for my staff. And so when I say I prosecuted X, Y, and Z, I prosecuted these cool cases and these important cases, it's me and my staff. It's a week and it goes on. So that staff is critical. And so you want to make sure you take care of your staff, make sure that you, you accommodate and, and Hopefully, you, it's unfortunate. Now you have to recruit again. You've got to recruit again because there is an amazing number of prosecutors in that office with like five years or less experience. And you're talking about a lot of those attorneys who are now remaining five years or less experience. So if you've got a homicide, a burglary, a robbery, or something that matters to you that's changed your life, has changed your life for the forever, forever is being handled by a prosecutor, a no, no offense to the prosecutor, because that's just they're going to take a job and they're going to try to get experience and do the best they can. But now they got they don't have the experience. And so here comes some very experienced defense attorney or someone who is who's going to, I don't want to say push them around, but ha- have got more minds. them. Yeah. And so now, you, now you're, going to have to, you're going to have to train. You're going to have to recruit. And so those are the things early on. But rest assured that... Violent, dangerous, repetitive offenders are not going to be slipping through the crack at all. So those are the priorities that I will have day one is to hold people who are dangerous, violent, and repetitive accountable for the crimes they do. Okay. That sounds like a plan to me. Okay. If you could change any law, what would it be? (laughs) I've always burglary. And so here's... This is, I'll take two minutes to explain. No, go ahead. So first time, so the audience knows if if a person has no historical priors, no history, no prior felony history, they commit a residential burglary, it's a class three probation available crime. 
Now, if there's a gun involved, a weapon involved, it elevates it to a class two prison only. So the gun is your determining factor. Does it have to be a gun? Can it be a knife? It's a, you know, I think it's a dangerous weapon, so I okay. think it includes a knife. And so um, it's been a long time since I've done state cases. It's been a long time. But, um, but I think that's hooey. I think that's hooey. I think a gun obviously is an aggravator. Mm-hmm. I think a gun's an aggravator, which increases your, your range. However, what constitutes probation versus prison, if someone is, if someone is home during the burglary, the same, same scenario, first-time offender breaks into a home and someone's home, I think that should be a prison only because you've now elevated the danger, you've elevated the anxiety, and all kinds of stuff can go wrong because you broke into a house because a single mom or kids are at home or whatever. you got a violent entry into the home. You've now, to me, you're a prison-only individual. If you break into a home and no one's there, no one's there, it's a big loss to me. However, it's not the same if my wife is home or kids are home and you break into that home with weapons or whatever it is, you ain't going to probation. You're going to prison. I don't care if you're on drugs or not. You'll get treatment in prison for the drug addiction, but you have now pivoted my life. My life has now changed because of what you've just now done. So I'm going to alter your life a little bit. So you understand what the consequences are of breaking into a home, especially when someone's home. That would be a law I would change, Sherry. I would try to. Okay. What law is on the book right now that you'd want to get rid of? Well, for uh, any law that has criminalizing abortion, I'm a, that's the one. So if, it, if there's any law on the, to criminalize it, I'm going to get rid of it. So just rest assured to the public, I'm not going to prosecute anyone who has an abortion. So. I I think when they took the freedom of choice away, you know, when did you become a doctor? Why are you in between my doctor and, and myself? That just that really. You mean you don't want me telling you, Sherry? No, how you should. No, I don't. <laughs> I'm being facetious. Then. Of course not. No, of course not. Of course Stop not. that. Let alone so. make it criminal. Let alone make it criminal, which is ridiculous. Okay, somebody. You, let's go back to the the burglary with the gun and the drugs. Do they add all the fines? I mean, there's a set of fines that, you know, you get 20 years or 30 years or whatever. Do they add them together and now you have 50 years or do they compile them? Okay, now you get 10 years for this and 10 years for that and you serve it all at once. Well, this is a good legal question. So we have, there's law school classes on sentencing on this stuff. So it all depends if, if, it's, a, if, if it's one act, if, if the drugs and stuff are one act. If they're separate acts, you can, we call stack it. So you can have a burglary on top of a drug sale, on top of a whatever. But if they're all in the same event, usually you're going to run that at concurrent. So there's there's factors. If if I have, this is getting complicated, I'm sorry for that. But no, it's fine. If I have a burglary, if I take all the elements away from the burglary, right, I prove my mm-hmm. burglary. If I have another element that I can prove for a different crime, that now becomes something I can stack. I can make it consecutive to the sentence. I'm not saying we will. I'm just saying now it becomes an available option for prosecution and the court to do that. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean we will. I'm just saying if, once you remove the elements of one crime and you've got enough facts to support the other, other crime, that technically becomes something you can stack, make consecutive. Okay. So it just, and that's up to the judge? Well, that's up to how we charge it. 
the prosecutor charged a certain way. And then ultimately, all the sentencing, all the sentencing is going to be up to the judge. All the sentencing is up to the judge. But how we frame it, how we frame it, we frame it this way. Now the judge has these options. If we frame it a different way, the judge has these options. So we have a lot of say in how that gets framed and how what options the judge has. So you want you want a just prosecutor, you want a compassionate prosecutor, but you also want a prosecutor who understands that how I frame these charges and how I frame a plea deal or a conviction, it it it, it binds the judge in a certain certain realm of possibilities. So how I do that matters. Okay, when you're prosecuting somebody, you have access to their criminal history. I do. Sometimes the court doesn't allow that in in court, does for the a trial? Absolutely trial. not. There's so we want them responsible for the crime they committed. So does the judge know what the criminal history was? Oftentimes the judge, but the judge is not my is not I'm my trier of fact. The judge will know, but the tri- the judge is not dis- deciding guilt or innocence. That okay. So if the jury the, will never know. If the judge knows what the history is, does the judge take that into consideration when they're uh, issuing a sentence? Oh, absolutely. You you consider everything, and this is this is why I think prosecutions to stay out of sentencing. Mm-hmm. I think what my job is to hold people accountable. I have this defendant who I just know a snapshot in time. I just know he broke into a house on February third, and this is all I know about this defendant. I don't know his background, how he was raised, the the challenges he had to overcome. Let the defense attorney and the judge have a dialogue with the defendant. My job is done. How I frame it matters, but my job is done. And let the judge and defense attorney fight about what is the most appropriate. Now, sometimes when I have a victim and the victim doesn't have a voice because they're afraid to say something, I'll step in for the victim. But prosecution, my job is simple. Hold you accountable. How it's sentenced, that's going to be for the court and for the defense attorney to make. If there's a victim, there's going to be victim input. So it sounds like a lot of street smarts is is a good thing to have when you're in in a courtroom. Well, I'm giving I'm giving training. everyone a tutorial, I guess. So. Okay. <laughs> That's right. So, but I'm I'm thinking, you know, experience matters. Absolutely matters if you're going to hold people accountable. In every job, it matters. I mean, you don't True. just because you drive a truck, drive a, a sedan doesn't mean you're going to drive an 18-wheeler. Right. Just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean you become county attorney. And so you have to have the experience just because you know how to throw a football doesn't mean you're in the NFL playing starting quarterback. Right. You have to have experience and qualifications just because you know how to do something doesn't mean you're the right person to do it. So true. That's true. I'm glad you said that. That makes sense. And to be able to mentor, you know, a new staff on your with your experience makes a huge difference on the outcome. I'm sure. So I'm telling everybody again, we're at 3445 East uh, Dodge. No, North Dodge. Sorry, don't go to East Dodge. We're not there. (laughs) And Mike will be here from 930 till noon doing a town hall. We did this a couple of weeks ago with uh, Laura Conover. And if you missed it, I'm sorry. It was very good. And we want to hear from Mike now. So get in your car, come on over, and... Meet Mike. What do you have to say? Come as many as you are. There's plenty of seating. Yeah, you don't have coffee, maybe. Yeah, (laughs) coffee. How do you take your coffee? Black, wherever, wherever it comes in. Black, black coffee would be good. 
So, no cutting it with any legal poison. We'll be doing Yeah. <laughs> Until next week, shop local. Tucson's only live local news and talk. KVOI Cortero, 1030 The Voice, a Bustos media station. Online at KVOI.com.